You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 633. Imagination is more important than knowledge. For while knowledge defines where we currently know and understand, imaginations points us all to where we might yet discover and create. Albert Einstein. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters, David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouris, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. And guys, before we start, I want to let you know that we are having a massive Black Friday sale on ifhacademy.com. Courses that have been on there will be slashed a way that we have never slashed them before. We've never discounted our courses so much. Wanted to give back to the tribe and make it as easy as possible to get access to some of this top, top-notch education from screenwriting to filmmaking, to film producing, from how to write a script, how to build characters that sell, to what to do with your script after you sell it, how to produce a script, how to distribute your film after it's done, and so much more. All you need to do is go to ifhacademy.com. On Black Friday through Cyber Monday, our deals will be there. Now, guys, today you're in for a treat. Today's guest is Penn Densham. And he is an award-winning screenwriter, producer, and director and has made some of the biggest Hollywood blockbusters of all time, including Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Backdraft, Blown Away, and even his new current movie that he's the executive producer of, Harriet. Now, Penn has been around the block and then some. He is started off as a screenwriter and still is a screenwriter, but also went into directing and producing as well. He is also the author of the book, Writing the Alligator, Strategies for a Career in Screenplay Writing and Not Getting Eaten. I absolutely love this book. It is such a from the inside ground level, street level uh, way of looking at how to approach developing a career as a screenwriter in Hollywood. And Penn has seen it all and work with some of the biggest movie stars of all time. And in this episode, I wanted to kind of dig into his philosophy of screenwriting in Hollywood because there is a special specific way that he looks at developing a career in Hollywood as a screenwriter, as well as just asking him, what was it like having like the number one movie of the summer back in the day with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? What is it like to be the bell of the ball in Hollywood and when everybody wants to work with you and having so many consistent hits back to back? And Penn is just such a down-to-earth soul, and I just had just an amazing time talking to him. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Penn Deschamps. 
I'd like to welcome to the show Penn Densham. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Alex. Nice to be chatting with you again. Yes, I know. We met at a wonderful mixer the other day, and we hit it off. And I'm like, well, you have to be on the show. And um, and you've written some of my favorite movies and produced some of my favorite movies of all time. And I, we'll get to all of those in a minute. But before we even get started, how did you get into this business? Oh, well, I was born into it. Uh, my folks were making short films when I was a little kid. And... Um, so I'm four years old and I'm riding an alligator in a movie that my folks are making about people who keep strange pets. Dating myself, that movie actually went out with um, Africa Queen into the movie theaters. So I saw my mom and dad with cameras and the power of cameras. And, and since that time, just yearned to tell stories and have that, what I call it casting a spell. You're, you're doing something that's extraordinary. People are all drawn to it. And I don't think they had babysitters back then, or they couldn't afford them. So they took me to Water Street. So I'm I'm four years old, meeting the people that are distributing their movies, and sitting in the theater with them, watching them with them. And uh, from that time on, I just yearned, literally yearned, to be involved. And then my mom died when I was eight. Uh, my father's uh, behavior was um, not as supportive. He married a very difficult lady. And at 15, I left school uh, with, uh, and I, and I love cameras, but my school was trying to punish me out of uh, being imaginative and help me by getting me a job as a bank clerk or something. And my <laughs> stepmother and my father were doing the same thing. Right. And it, it's very destructive to your sense of self-worth and your uh, holistic, uh, um, the way your mind works if you're a creative person to have people banging on you for being egotistical or difficult. Or, and so it, it left me with a deep sense of trying to protect other people's creativity. And, um, and, and also it gave me a lot of understanding about creativity and vulnerability, which I think people who have very complex imaginative minds are also vulnerable to a lot of self-doubt. And so um, we were talking a bit about why I wrote a book on screenplay writing. It was that I couldn't find a book that reassured me when I was starting to write screenplays way back that I was normal, that this process was not perfection. You sit down and write from A to Z or you have to have every plot beat and every structure. I, I learned that when I let myself go, sometimes I would have the last lines of a movie in my head that had been in my brain for two years knowing I was going to write it, get the last lines that make me cry and then pursue getting the rest of the movie. And it's illogical. And then sometimes we have what we call islands of sanity, which you get two or three pieces in a movie and you know you have to write the rest. And it's not about writing um, to fit somebody's belief system or some architecture, but it's how do you get that voice out of you and I think if you get that voice out of you, you write to a different potency level. And also you protect your work for longer. You fight longer to try and make it more approachable for a buyer. And so you don't give up on it. Whereas right. if you write something to hit a formula, oh, horror movies are selling or rom-coms are selling, write one, but it's not in your nature. When the people that you're trying to sell it to give up on you, you give up too. Whereas I have scripts that I've fought for generations to get made. And I can't give up on them because they're somehow in my soul, which sounds crazy, but I'm no, very proud of that. It doesn't sound crazy at all. We, well, first of all, I always tell people we're all crazy to be in this business. We are, we are all carnies. 
we are all we all ran away to to, to join the circus. We we are. I mean, isn't that isn't that a good analogy? I mean, we all are carnies. The most unique people ever you meet in this business, they're all a little bit crazy. You know, we, we, we just put on a show. And, and if you want to get a complete, you know, perfect analogy is when you're making a movie, you go to a location, you put up your tent, you shoot for the day, you put, you put on a show, almost, you record the show, you put it down and you move on to the next location. That's a carny. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I liken it slightly differently, but I still think that's an incredibly valid way of looking at it. I, I, I look at it because I'm trying to figure out how to overcome the suffering of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the way I looked at it is it's like a sport and I absolutely loved playing it. And the sport I think it is, is American football because mm-hmm. I get hit. I have to put a team together. I don't have to love everybody in that team, but I have to inspire them. I'm going to have the ball stripped from me. I'm going to sit in the bench sometimes, but if I get to play and I love it enough, it makes it worthwhile. Now, you got your start in the business as a screenwriter, correct? Not quite. No, okay. actually, um, my, my and, I, I, and I don't like talking about my, my, my all too much. So, but mm. left school at 15, tried to start my own businesses in England, fled to Canada at 19 thinking I was a washed up failure, ended up in a culture where young people were being helped to make moves. And I'm going, holy crow. Um, and I'm watching a 15-year-old guy making a sync sound 16 mil movie. And because I've been trying to sell things in England, um, I was able to help him sell his movie to the, to the TV network and started to see in Canada there was a, an exchange of ideas from young filmmakers. And we were making short films. We were learning from each other, selling to the world market, selling to schools and libraries, which was a market back then. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And in some ways, I see this parallel happening in the way that the business is now uh, uh, aggregating, again, many different avenues of opportunity. And so we tried, I worked with a couple of companies, uh, one including, uh, that introduced me to Marshall McLuhan, uh, who was the guru of communications at that point in the world. And that sense of free thinking and the sense of starting something because you cared about it and pursuing it until you put all the money together and all the pieces together, the entrepreneurial side was trained into us making short films at a point where we uh, we also learned if you don't enter, you don't win awards. And if you don't win awards, people don't know how to judge your movies. So award winning became something we pursued. And uh, we, we ended up winning over 60 awards, got medals from the queen. But it's bullshit because <laughs> if you don't pursue it, it doesn't happen. Um, and we made this one film, which was vitally important emotionally to me, which is where we asked children to direct commercials for life as if they were selling and i wanted to make a movie about young people's imaginations in a way of protecting the punishment that i'd gone through and saying these people are incredibly valuable no matter what age they are their imaginations are vital and powerful things so by doing this we got a movie that we ended up with nine young people each directed their own commercial for life with real actors real crews and we managed to get it nominated for an oscar and awesome. we, 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 I'd also learned being a huckster, being a carny, um, <laughs> that, uh, I'd seen other friends of mine in Canada get occasionally nominated for an Oscar and wait to see if they won and went to the uh, Oscars, didn't win and came home and no one knew it had happened. So I said, okay, fuck it. We're going to put every ounce of effort 
into making sure everybody knows that this nomination happened. And so we were on the front page of every newspaper. We had a film crew fly with us to can from Canada to the Oscars. We got permission with the government's help to take all nine children to the Oscar ceremony. And you know how hard it is to get tickets? And the end result was that when we lost, and there was only three movies in that year, but one was from the LA Philharmonic. So um, the, we were on the front page of every newspaper in Canada, and we were on the nightly news for losing. And um, that put our company on the map, which again gave us the opportunity to go out and beg for more funds to go do films that we cared about. That's amazing, and 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 that's something that they, they don't teach this. That exactly what you did is you you get an opportunity like this, so if, whether if it's an Oscar nomination as a short film, Sundance, a big event, a big news article, something that you leverage it, and you and you try to use it to push your your yourself and your company or your movie further along. And filmmakers aren't taught this. I yell at this about this at the top of my life. You're writing a book about this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My yeah, my new book, Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, talks about that as well as many other ways of creating revenue streams and so on. But one thing I wanted to talk to you before before I ask you some other questions I have for you. The whole world of distribution is changing so dramatically. And you know, you, we were talking off air about this whole distributor thing and you know and, and all the press that I've been getting and and the and the, not only me but all these thousands of filmmakers who have been been hurt by you know the downfall of um, of this film aggregator, and how that many ways that the system is rigged against, especially at the at the low indie level, the system's rigged against the independent filmmakers as far as distribution is concerned. How do you see things going forward? I mean, we were we kind of touched upon it a little bit, but there is going to be a change. Look, look, Netflix came along and literally changed the entire industry. You know, this little, little company that would, could have been purchased for 50 million bucks by Blockbuster back in 2000 and I think two or three. Um, and then now it's worth 150 billion and has changed not only the industry, but changed how we view our viewing habits, how we, the concept of binging, the concept, right. all the, you know, it's changed the world. That's, there's still going to be more changes coming and I think they're going to come faster than we even anticipate. For independent films and for, for creators, what do you think the future is in distribution? Well, I, you know, it's, it's the gold rush. Nobody knows where the veins are. No one knows how you're going to chisel them out. Um, <laughs> it's great. creative entrepreneurism, which I always call that process that you, just, you must spend as much effort selling your material to people as you use to create it. And I call it also building a bridge backwards, which is you can't anticipate that your buyer understands what you've got. If you make them make the effort of trying to categorize what you've got, you lose because you're doing something where they're too distracted and don't understand it. So I break selling down into four component elements, which I'm now going to give you my two-minute lecture on how to sell. Please. First rule is identify your buyer because no one buys from a stranger. Research them and then reach out to them and find compatibility. Because you're not going to sell to someone unless they, they feel that you understand them a little bit. So you know that they, they were the people that did that particular movie that was successful. And you praise them genuinely. Everything is about authenticity because people have a big bullshit detector. You can't – and you've got hustle on your forehead. You can't hustle people when they it's don't good, feel it's a good the reality. Yes, there's it's a, a good, good hustle. There's a good hustle and a bad passion, hustle. Passion. So anyway, so you research your buyer, you, you create a rapport with your buyer by meeting with them and talking about things that they value. Second one is demonstrate passion, because why should they care if you don't? So you take, you take an idea 
And I tell my, I, I've taught a couple of times at USC Film School, and I'd say, you can be almost inarticulate if you demonstrate passion because the excitement is contagious. And if you have got something and it's cold-blooded and you don't really care and it's a marketing device, you're not going to get me believing that you're going to go through brick walls to achieve it. So by demonstrating passion, what you're doing is getting the that this is the root stem of my belief systems that I'm investing in this thing. And it's more likely to get people to support you. And when you're doing a movie with somebody, if it's a development deal, they're putting their job on the line a little bit with you. And, and so really a pitch is a chance to have a conversation with somebody and not a chance to say, okay, I've got 40 for two minutes and I have to give you A to Z of a, of a structure because that's leaving them out. So then I use a demonstration. I say that my wife had a dream and it was so scary. She stayed up nights and then she told me the dream. It seemed scary. It was keeping me up. But I decided to turn it into a movie, which is my passion statement. This is a totally illusory one, but it's helpful. And then I say that movie, which is what I call the goalposts, is sort of like halfway between the exorcist and alien. Now, the reason I use that term before I describe what the movie is, is that I've I've made a relationship with the buyer, I'm demonstrating passion, and I've told them that I'm going to show them what this movie is in terms of the things they need. Because selling a movie is really filling the need of the buyer, not your idea of getting them to buy you, but what you're trying to do is sell them that you, you provide a solution to their goals, which is, and I say this movie is, halfway between The Exorcist and Alien. Now, what development exec wouldn't like to have one of those in there? And so what I've done is I put two goalposts up. And simplicity, I don't say it's halfway like the Exorcist, the Alien, and Game of Thrones, because you screw up there, remember. And so halfway between the Exorcist and the Alien, and then I give them my pitch, and I say, this movie is about a defrocked alcoholic priest who's taken to the moon by NASA because they've they've found the devil's bones up there, and people are becoming possessed. Fantastic. And I could sell that. And I just use it as a pitch module. But... What what I'm really trying to demonstrate is that people will send me scripts uh, or ideas uh, every day. I get dozens of uh, emails, and I've got a movie that's a horror movie, and horror movies are selling. I have no interest in it. You haven't, you don't know that I did Houdini, Mal Flanders, Robin Hood, and that I've I've got a, a an interest in physicalizing historical characters, and that I'm interested in making altruistic heroes out of things. You have no idea who I am or what I'm what I'm. And so, because you didn't research me. You're not going to touch my heart. And if you send me an email and you say, Mal Flanders, my wife and I cried when we saw that movie. Uh, we, we love um, seeing Houdini, which you did. And we wondered if this project would have an appeal to you. That changes the whole dynamic. And so um, I also see people trying to sell their work. And they'll say, oh, this sold in the movie theaters this weekend and I got one just like it. And you go, <sighs> oh, my God. Uh, I bet you you've already sent that out to hundreds of people, and why would I care? Can, um, can, can we? Can we? Personal, yeah, sure. it's, can we? Can we? I, I just want to for everyone listening right now. I need you to. Just, I want this to be put out there into the universe. I've said it before, but I want to say it one more time. If you're creating a pitch and you're making a horror movie, do not use Blair Witch Project and the Paranormal Activity as examples of how much money your movie can make. Is that a fair statement to say? Well, it, it's it's a fair statement because those are so extreme that they're unlikely to be taken seriously. But right. if you can find a couple of films that are really solid, yes. that have gone to great lengths into the market and have got a similarity of 
um, relationship, those two goalposts things. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But also what you're looking at is the buyer is the button. The most buyers don't want to do exactly the same thing twice. There's no stimulus. If you go to a director and you say, hey, you did the Blair Witch. Well, I've got this other shaky camera movie about people. But a witch, but a witch. <laughs> you know, whereas if you take and you look at them very seriously and you study them a little bit, and you say, you know, I noticed you did this, this and this. Would this challenge you? Would this be exciting? And you're, you're, you're really looking at the next stepping stone. And actors are also excited to get involved with things that challenge their skills. They like to be a little scared. And so if you go to, you know, it's like going to Costner and saying, hey, you just did Robin Hood. Would you like to do William Tell? He's going to say, no, not, 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 you're out of mind. But when you like play somebody investigating the John F. Kennedy death, yeah, because that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so your goal as the artist entrepreneur trying to sell your work is to try and see the buyers. And there's a lot of buyers out there. You know, we, we normally need to have you ha- come at us through an agent or a manager or a lawyer. Those are the three routes. But you can also go in through uh, potentially a, a professor of school, uh, USC, or somebody who would, who would add, your, add their name to you as an advocate. Mm-hmm. And I suggest to people going after the uh, actors or directors or producers with their own companies and avoid the studio because they don't have a system to engage people like us, the more freebooters. But the directors or the actors – they have people looking every day for things that will stimulate their bosses. And so you don't look like you're coming from a pro forma place. You're coming from a place of discovery for them. And if you can do that, then you've got a good chance of breaking through the system and actually getting seen. But you've got to research your buyer. You've got to even make friends with the assistants. A lot of us forget that we're dealing with human beings, and it's human beings to human beings that will help you. And by taking the time in a meeting when you're going to meet the boss, take the time to say hello to the assistant, get their number, and phone them up afterwards and say, you know, is there anything I could learn from what I what went down? And when would be a good time to talk to your boss? And you, you realize, again, assistants are on every phone call. They, they monitor the progress, and they also scuttle that with each other about what their studio is looking for, what their boss is looking for. And a lot of the time, the student, the, the the, the assistants in a, in a structure are people trying to get up through the system just like you are. And by, by taking, again, honest interest in them and asking for their experience to help you get to your goals, you create friendship. And as they, as they go to their levels of opportunity, and I've seen um, a director friend of mine end up being represented by the assistant to the, to the agent he was with. And it was with a big agent who never had any time for him. And suddenly the assistant gets promoted to agent and she's only got three clients. And so suddenly he's gone from being ignored to being someone that they're trying to push. And now she's the head of lit for a major agency. So again, this, this, this process of creative entrepreneurism is looking at opportunity and trying to find it, not being scared uh, to, to, to look for ways to get yourself to the front. And I also believe there are systems for reinforcing yourself, such as I call it story midwives, but there are safe people that you trust who will tell you the truth in a kind way. And you've got to expose your work to people there before you expose it to the Philistines, the, the naysayers, the difficult ones. Right. 
because they can cross-check all the things so that you get it really right and can be reassured that when you go out to the other buyer um, that you've got most of the questions answered or you've got most of the material clear so that people understand it. And we call that asshole proofing. So we don't send a script out until it's really clear that we've got most of the objections and the things that are hard to understand out of it because you don't get two reads. And if you put a year of your life into a script or longer and you've got things that people didn't understand in it, it's it's like falling in the water off a, off a stepping stone. You know, you're going bing, 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 and then plump, and then you're wet for the rest of the script if the rest is wet. Whereas if you fix those things, you've got a script that's solid and your friends have reassured you that it makes sense. And then you put it out to the world, but you never put it out until you've got it uh, because all that effort deserves that. Um, that kind of uh, sense of value in your own stuff. Now, now you've spent you've said it a couple of times. Creative entrepreneurship, which I call film entrepreneurship, um, which is which is the same exact thing. I truly believe that in the future, the film entrepreneur is going to be the the only way independent films independent filmmakers can really make a living is being an entrepreneurial filmmaker, entrepreneurial creative. And that goes with screenwriting. That goes with filmmaking. Do you agree? Do you think that because the, because the opportunities, I mean, you come from a time, you know, in the early nineties and before, but like specifically in the nineties, there were, there were a lot of gates, a lot of gatekeepers. There was only a handful of places you could go with a project and, and out of that, you were like really – you were stuck in the really independent world where – and again, even there, there weren't a lot of outlets. Now, the gates have been flown open. The big boys still have gatekeepers, but there's so many other places that will accept your 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 art, your your projects, your writing that the there's so much opportunity that if you're not entrepreneurial about going after those opportunities and then monetizing those opportunities once they come into your world, you won't survive because if you're trying to play the game by the rules that they set out for you, which is stacked against you, I don't believe that I don't believe it will work. Do you do you believe that that the entrepreneurial creative the creative entrepreneur is going to be the key to making a living in this business? We're 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 in a revolution. We don't know where we're going. Well, I always figured there'd be a hundred million TV channels, and I was thinking that since the nineties. So um, you we're know, not we're, we're not too far off. <laughs> we're not too far off, and uh, it costs you nothing to upload your film now to YouTube and actually profit from it. So you you can actually become your own studio and your own distributor. Now, what what the next thing is? How do you get an audience? And that comes back to being imaginative in some way. We did a, a TV special on magic many many years ago. And we, to complete that show, we hung a guy in secret over Niagara Falls and did a straitjacket escape. And that we, uh, uh, you know, uh, first of all, when we, when we went to Niagara Falls Parks Commission, they said, no freaking way, you're never going to do that. So then we realized that we've been totally rejected. And then we decided, okay, so then we analyzed who was on the parks board, found a guy who was 80 years old who knew my, brother, my father-in-law, and we asked him if we could show him one of our movies. And we showed him a movie that was about sports heroes of Canada. He came out of the screening crying. And he then let us go and make a presentation to the board again, who had already totally refused us. And I happened to go to that on a day when they were fixing Niagara Falls. And they had a crane outside filling in concrete on places on it. And I said, I I really, first of all, have to apologize. I failed to tell you how important this was to our company. But secondly, 
I'm going to tell you a secret. My guy who's doing this stunt, who was the amazing Randy, says it's no worse than falling out of bed. It's it's like no danger. and But we don't want to tell people that. And then I said, you already have people hanging out over the Niagara Falls right now if you look out the window. So um, I, it, all that effort ended up that I was able to shoot Amazing Randy upside down over Niagara Falls in secret in the middle of winter. And then we held the photographs until the show went on the air. And I phoned up every newspaper in Canada and I said, we will give you exclusive on this, these photos that no one knew we'd done of a stunt at Niagara Falls if you'll put them on the front page and we won't let any other newspaper have them. So, and we ended up getting front pages with our stunt, which promoted our movie. Now, is that effort normal or is it what you have to do? I don't know, but it certainly, for us, it was the only way we could break through the clutter that we had back then. And I think that same kind of application of energy, whether it's um, finding a reason why an audience should tune in or finding a reason why a buyer should buy, those things are really part of making films. And um, I, I learned from Norman Jewison. My, my, my luck was that we did a lot of short films, then we did a lot of TV specials, and we were not being given support to do a drama. And I eventually found, through a friend of mine who's another filmmaker, who said, CBC's giving 10 grand to anybody that can make an idea as a young filmmaker that they'll approve. I decided I would write a drama, which was the most miserable experience in my life. Never done it before. Didn't know how to write. I was 30. I had always been too scared. Ended up working with direct, uh, directing actors that I'd never done in my life. It was the most miserable experience. My partner edited it like a sports film, took every pause out of it. It was a piece of shit. And I, I was so embarrassed. I sat with him in the editing room. In those days, it was take and film. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, my God, I've just let everybody down. We have to do something. What happens? What, what does his face look like before he says that line? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And you, you know, your partner goes, oh, okay. And, you know, and that, and that was a minute, and that took a minute to do back then. Took, oh, yes. <laughs> and, and you look at it, it looks like the guy's thinking. And you go, oh my God, what else can we do? So I went through the whole thing, doctoring it with my partner, putting it into cuts, expanding the pauses, you know, and it won 14 awards. And I'm going, no, 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 you don't understand. I just barely survived this. And Norman Jewison offers me free paper by the Canadian government, come to Hollywood. And I'm going, oh, I don't deserve this. You must, I mustn't do this because there's a thing called imposter syndrome. And we, when I'm coming back to something you were talking about earlier, the people, I'm, I'm invited every year by final draft to meet the winners of the final draft contest. And what I do is I have a breakfast with them and I talk about imposter syndrome, which is the failure to take advantage of an opportunity and what we only get those opportunities once in a while. And if we question ourselves during that opportunity, instead of pushing to its most possible beneficial outcome, we fail ourselves and we're going to be polite. We're going to feel like it's, it's wrong to push ourselves and that this is probably a mistake and we don't deserve it. And I will frequently ask them, what else have you succeeded with? And I say, oh, we, you know, I was in the, leading the school play. I had several writing prizes. And you realize that these people have a consistency, but they don't validate it. And that's one of the most dangerous things as a creator is not believing in yourself. 
and not going to take opportunities. And I say my worst personal damage is the things I failed to have the courage to stick my neck out and try. Mm-hmm. And I call those my errors of omission. And they still haunt me for going, oh, you idiot. You could have walked across the room and asked that guy, you know, that actor. You didn't do it because you didn't. And so I want to encourage people, take the freaking shot. Because your errors of commission, where you embarrass yourself briefly, minor, compared with the opportunities you might find. And so going back to taking another shot at Niagara Falls, it was embarrassing. It was scary. I'd already been rejected. Les Moonves, when I had the idea of trying to revive the Twilight Zone, the last time it was revived, um, rejected me soundly three times in a row. Actually said yes and then changed his mind. Then I sent him a letter saying, you know, because he changed his mind because the system, they said, TV couldn't use anthologies. And I said, well, you've got six minutes and you've got unsolved mysteries. They're anthologies, same host every week, different stories, and they've been number one. That's not the same thing. So I get shut down. Then we got this clip of uh, pieces from our Outer Limits TV series, which was science fiction, fantasy, some wonderful, really fascinating uh, CGIs and things we were doing at that point. And we put this together to demonstrate what we've been doing. And I said to my partner, uh, John, could you put the Twilight Zone music on that? So then I delivered it to Les Moonves and his, his people thought it was fantastic. And Les says, I'm not doing this. Stop it. Then Les gets um, control of UPN, which is the network at that time that had Star Trek on it. And that was their number one show. And I go to my partner, John, and said, could you go to Les and mention that Twilight Zone might be good? Because we found, by the way, that they own the Twilight Zone. So um, it was not me coming to them with something. I'm trying to actually get them to do something. I love the Twilight Zone. I'm the only person that's actually revived both the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limit. So... I, I, my partner says, no, 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 you have to do it. And I'm going, I, I don't have to do this. I'm too scared. I'm going to, he's going to, he's going to like uh, scream at me. And then what I did was I found what I call a framing device, which is, and I'm taking you through the steps of trying mm-hmm. to be entrepreneurial. Um, I found something that made me comfortable and a framing device. We, we, we use these terms because we needed the, we need to help each other find these things which is something you could say or something you felt that protected you so you could take the risk of sticking your neck out and trying to get to your dream. And my framing device was, I wasn't courageous enough to phone Les, but I was willing to write him a letter. And my letter that came up to to me that gave me permission to talk to him was, Dear Les, so help me. I swear I will never mention the words Twilight Zone to you ever again after this. And that was my framing device. And I felt great. And then I wrote, how about it being a companion piece to Star Trek? I was in his office the next day. He said, I'm giving you 10 days because we're up against the deadline. You can write whatever you want, a 10-minute presentation, whatever you want. I wrote a a one-hour pilot. I didn't know I could write a one-hour pilot. But if you freaking put yourself under the – it's amazing what you can do. Mm -hmm. We were shooting it within 40 days. That's so, amazing. That's unheard of in the industry. But it's because the demand, his need, I was filling his need. He's taking over a network. He has a number one science fiction show. And, and the idea of teaming it up with one of the greatest anthology series is, 
and uh, we 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 always um, bowed to it not being us. We were picking up the mantle of storytelling, but it wasn't our show. We were we were celebrating what had gone before, and um, that's an example of not giving up. That's that's it's it's, it's what? they won't always work, but once in a while you end up with a success, and then it's we a- end. 22 of them so that's amazing and 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 one thing you said there because we had two stories every episode so that was <laughs> fair enough easy. fair enough so the one thing you said that i wanted to touch on is that you were fulfilling his need where i feel yes. that a lot of screenwriters and filmmakers are asking you to fulfill their needs you're not being of service to you so like if you're the person i'm trying to pitch or, or do something else doing that research because you you want good projects you you want good things right. to do and so do studios and so they all want you to be a good project they all want your script to be the next greatest thing of all time but most people and i see it i get it in my inbox every day i just literally got one today they like sent me a, a screen a screenwriting a, a screenplay curry or script curry whatever that thing is yep. where, where they're like hey i have a new script it got this kind of coverage would you like to do i'm like do you not know who I am? Do, do, do you think I have some sort of, sure, here's a million dollars, let's go make it. I'm not that guy. You did no research, but you sent it to me anyway. And But but by being of service to whoever you're trying to pitch is so much more powerful and also more powerful when you're selling to an audience, when you're selling to a customer, when you're selling to a producer, a studio. Being of service to them should be the way you lead with these pitches is that make sense well you, you you chose to play this game which costs millions of dollars or if, if we now make a film on our, on our iphone which is plausible um but you're still investing your time and energy you have to look at the end result is trying to get it to a mass market it's not like you're trying to do this for personal reasons you're trying to get as many people as possible to see it now if you were if you were selling a car would you go out and sell a housewife a mini with who's got six family members you, you, you know, so it's like right. asking those questions. You're going to sell a, a, a Cadillac Escalade to uh, somebody who's just come out of college and has, you know, gigantic uh, uh, bills for their education and no money. No. So you, you're what you're trying to do is fit your project because there's probably a place your project might fit if you've asshole proof the project by checking out with people that you trust that the material is strong enough now. Um what you're looking at is, okay, what, what people could you see using this as a tool to get into their goals? Not, I'm going to send it everywhere, but how can I make it personal so that you see a, a director who's done several uh, very, very high-key but very un, un, unemotional um, movies, Marvel comics or something, and you wonder if they – and you see you research underneath them and you see – Wow, my God! This guy studied Shakespeare, and then and then and then you realize that maybe he'd like something that's really contained, but would really show off his skills working with actors and emotions. And you you then approach the system in his through his uh, either his agency, his management, or through his own production company, and you tell. The, and the most important thing in any letter is acknowledge the quality that you validate in that person. Because the first thing they read is going to be, oh, he gets me or she gets me. 
as opposed to I've just got this project and would you buy it? It is, I understood from researching you because I loved your this, that, and this, and that. and But also I saw that you had this deep heart and you actually donate money to the charity for whatever this is. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I, I have immense uh, feelings for that same thing. Would it be okay if I shared this project with you? And um, another tool is don't sell. Ask for advice. Sometimes it is easier to get in to meet somebody or to exchange information by showing them that you understand what they've done, by finding an advocate. Maybe you've gone to film school and your professor will say, you know, I, I love this guy. He's very unique. And I believe that you're talking to him would help help his career. You get that out of your professor. You make the effort. And then you go to this person and you sit with them, talk about your career, what you could learn from them. You create a relationship. And along the way, you mention the project you think that he might like. That's the effort you have to go to, not sending a freaking email out. You mean sending 5,000 emails out? And, 5, and, emails and it doesn't out. even say their name. It just says, hello. Yes. <laughs> or even yes, worse. And you know, and, and those poor people, you know, they, they're, they're not wrong in the sense that the school systems don't teach entrepreneurs. The, um, the, the colleges are not about trying to help you find routes to success. They're about trying to fit you into a system. And, yeah. and it doesn't mean to say that you won't succeed. Sometimes just the law of averages, the monkeys and typewriters will write Shakespeare, you know, if you have enough of them. But uh, if you can help yourself by finding your framing devices and finding tools that reach out to people through your genuine care and excitement to deliver something to them that you believe is special to their skills that you validate, that's a much easier way to sell. Now, I wanted uh, one of the things that um, we talked about when we first met at that at that mixer was your work on a film that was released in 1991 called. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I told you, I sat there gushing uh, because Robin Hood uh, in 1991, I still remember it so clearly. Uh, I was working at a video store during that time. uh, And I went to the movie theater with my friend. We sat in the front row because it was almost sold out. So we had to sit in the very front and, you know, with our necks cranked up and we watched it. And I don't know if it was the the reason that we felt like we were inside of it because we were so close to the screen (laughs) or if it was just that impactful to that that high school kid but when we walked out of the theater we went right back in and watched it again within within 20 minutes and i don't i i could count on a hand, how many times i've done that in my hand that's how wonderful of an adventure it was for us um and and it was such a it's one of my favorite films of of that era can you tell me how did you you wrote you wrote robin hood prince of thieves and you're also a producer on it how did you how did this whole thing come to, to come to be because robin hood is one of those you know, every every decade or two, they just redo a Robin Hood. You know, they and and I don't know before the Kevin Costner one. When was the last Robin Hood? Like prior to that? Uh, oh, probably Disney, the animated yeah, one. Yeah, God, oh, geez. So that we're talking about like thirty years prior to that, and then Flynn was prior yeah, to before, prior to uh, that. And I remember that there Banks, was a Fairbanks was before that, and, 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 and I do. Others, but, I yeah. do remember that there was a TV movie that came around that was trying to hack, just jump on that Robin Hood bandwagon. I remember very clearly, and they tried to release it as a, because uh, I, I worked at the video store, so I remember watching 
Oh, yes, right. So I remember well, watching story, that video. There's a story behind that, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, if I get boring, cut me off and just say get to the end. Okay, um, sure. We, we, we've been very successful in Hollywood working with people like Stallone, who had asked us to fix things in his films as consultants, because our own hands-on way with film uh, was very successful for getting problems resolved. Um, we worked outside of the definition of just a script. So we, we had access to people, uh, which was very cool. But we also looked at uh, what we were also doing was in Canada, we choose and chose to, to pursue things that excited us. Having had the privilege of having a my wife, I looked at what do I want to say? And I'm looking at Stallone making movies about killing lots of people and Schwarzenegger making Commando where human beings are just targets. And I'm looking at us raising this kid and putting all this energy in and going, what an enormous amount of love and effort it takes to raise a child. And you are using them as target practices. What would I like to say? And I came up with this idea of putting a Muslim and a Christian side by side in a Robin Hood, which would show two people of different, of different, who are supposed to be enemies actually learning from each other. And I also came up with this idea of what I called the makers of life versus the takers of life, which was if you had a hero, and it could be a heroine who's willing to die for the future of someone else. That's like a, and we did backdraft, which is like a fireman who's willing to die so that he gives other people a future. That's a maker of life. That's an altruistic hero. Whereas a taker of life is someone who puts their foot on a hot dead corpse and thinks I've done something wonderful. So I went out and pitched a Robin Hood that was about a lesson hidden inside an adventure because I'd grown up on Robin Hood. I'd grown up on the TV show, just like you watched ours and came away with my heart full and jump, jumping off rocks with a sword in my hand. And, um, and I went to three different studios and pitched the Robin Hood idea I had, which was to take it and make it a, 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 an adventure, but with um, this idea of putting a Muslim with him. And the three all said pretty much the same thing. No one wants to see guys with swords. All they want to see is guys with guns. You're wasting time. And I was about to give up. Um, there was a number of, there was a, there was a thought that I was also off course uh, by trying to put an Arab in Robin Hood. That didn't look good to a couple of people I knew. And um, we had a pop, we had an assistant who was working with us called Mark Stern. And Mark sort of looked at my notes and said, you know what? I think it's a great idea. If you start, I'll try and help you. And so the only reason Robin Hood exists is because that guy gave me enough encouragement to blow on the embers of something that I'd almost given up on. And I started writing. And every day I looked at what I was writing because I wrote just passionately, not, not not with any plan, just to see what would come out of me. And every day I looked at my pages and thought they were obvious and silly and um, made Marion comes out and she's very large and she's, and, and Robin is shocked and looks up at her on the balcony and says, oh my, the years have been kind to you. And then suddenly he's jumped by a person in leathers and that turns out to be made. And that seems so obvious to me. And, I, and my, my, assistant is no 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 and then he's giving the pages to john watson who's reading them and going no no keep going pen so i got encouraged to keep taking risks and we ended up that the film uh, i got i got the script out of me in three weeks but it it also then i gave it to john um to go through it and format it and 
had any any ideas and any adventures, and so it had his layer on it. And then as it got shot, different people added other elements, and um, we ended up with a rich, funny, warm uh, script that, that was the seeds of what I created and the energy of what I created. And for me, I was making a movie where you taught people a lesson about altruism, where you took the richest, most spoiled, obnoxious Lord's son, and he had told his dad to go screw himself. He was going off to fight, the, uh, and his father's begging him not to try and force a man to another man's religion. And he comes home, sees his father's dead, and takes his anger by making his peasants go out and fight the sheriff. And then realize that all he's doing is destroying their lives. And then he has an epiphany, and he's willing to die for their sons, for their children's future. And we put a birth scene in the movie. And the birth scene is metaphorically my son being born. And Robin Hood doesn't, it, it, it is both an adventure, but it's also a philosophical statement of life for me. And I couldn't give up on it. And so there were, and John um, took on the challenge of, he was what I call up to his ass in mud and arrows most of the time, because he's a great on set producer and I'm more a philosopher producer. So I was working on changes and writing things and, and um, whereas he was really taking the brunt of getting a hundred day shoot. Um, but the, the movie itself grew as each, as each element came to it. And Michael Kamen's score was just extraordinary. Um, I also got to run the mix and I am very much about when you create a movie, you're weaving a dream and the, the goal is never to let your audience wake up. It's like blowing up a balloon. You must never let the air out. And so in a mix, I worry about every facet of it. Can I uh, pre-lap a sound coming in from the next scene so there's no pause, but you're not conscious of it. If there's a pause in the, in the dialogues that's, that's empty, can I put birds flying from the trees so that your ear is tuned without it knowing that you didn't actually hear some dialogue. So I, I'm also excited in that process of keeping a trance, um, which is don't wake, don't let the audience wake up. And so when you mix a movie, which is the most beautiful part of a movie, because it's like a Frankenstein, you're putting new blood in it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show, and then and it comes to life. Um, to me, every aspect of making a film is vital. It's costumes tell a story, uh, sound effects tell a story. They have character and distribution. Even the title, your title sets up a, a trance state, an induction. If you, I studied hypnosis, so there's a thing you know. It's just inducing people and inducing people makes them want to go with you into the dream state. And what is it? You know, I think Hollywood is a, is a called the dream factory because truly stories work on our dream center. Like mm. we have receptors in us. And that was what Marshall McLuhan taught me when I, all those years ago saying, look at an audience watching a movie and you'll see they're in a trance and they're moving their faces with the characters on the screen. And Years later, I found research that said the reason that that's happening, which is fascinating to me, is that we have a social structure in us, which is um, the ability to sense and feel empathy with others. And the way it works is that we are hardwired to our pain centers and we micro mimic the expressions of others as we watch them. And then we feel what they feel. And if you Botox yourself, you don't feel as much and you don't send as much. Right. which is fascinating. 
And we have these things called mirror neurons, which yeah. are in us, which light up in the parts of our brain when we watch somebody do something or even when we read a book about somebody doing something, those same parts of our brain light up as what the character's doing in the book. So um, that's why I come back to this trance state. The purpose of a story, which is the thing that most people don't understand, is to teach us a lesson about ourselves so that we can actually watch the struggles of the characters and make choices about our own lives and the things we struggle with based on making a decision having observed others struggle comes back to if you have a hero in a movie superman is invulnerable he doesn't have a problem there's nothing to learn from so and the the real purpose of films is to find what the character's floor is what their difficulty is and illustrate it through the external story of getting the adventure out but inside is the actual journey and it's usually only like three steps i'm a spoiled rich brat i then have a tantrum which causes more problems, and then I come to learn who I should be if I was not spoiled and take responsibility for myself. That's Robin Hood. No, and and, so, and the way you've explained it, now knowing the movie so well as well as I do, is it just adds a whole other layer to it. Uh, you should have done the director's commentary or a commentary, producer's commentary, writer's commentary on the DVD track uh, back in the day because it does open up a completely different... But it, but it, you know, again, it's different. Different things get to a writing audience. I'll talk about these things. It's nutrition. Uh, an, an enormous number of stories don't have nutrition. The nutrition oh. is that you you've got a personal journey that you can relate to, that you can discover how to change yourself because of watching these people struggle. Um, and I I came up with a system inside our company because we developed hundreds of stories. Where I came up with code words called a nugget. The nugget for us is the seed inside the story that's going to grow in the brain of the person watching it. And what you know, an example would be a man is getting married and his girlfriend is starting to feel the closer to the date, the more he's sort of like living in her, in, in her world and she's feeling that she's being suffocated because everything she's doing, he's there and he's not letting her have a, a sense of her own freedom. And she calls off the wedding and she says to him, you know, I can't do this. And, uh, you know, you're, you're not letting me be me. And I'm, and I'm, and he says, you don't understand. My mother left the family on Christmas Eve when I was five years old and I didn't know how to love her enough. So she would stay with us. And she says, I'm not your mother. You have to trust me. You have to give me my freedom. That's a nugget. And it's three lines of dialogue, but it's got such pain and damage in it. And the story is, can he let go of his old fears and trust this woman to be the one he, he wants her to be, and can he be the person he would have been if that damage had never happened to him? So once you look at the story and you say, okay, can I, can I define those things? If you, and you, my rule is you write stories any way you can. Mm -hmm. Then you look for these things and see if you can emphasize them. And usually this piece of information is discussed at the belly of the beast, as, as, as Joseph Campbell says, when the characters crash and burn at the end of the second act, and all looks hopeless, they do a reassessment of who they are. And a, and a character uh, who has an influence on them will, will suggest something or will, will change their perspective on themselves. And the last act is, can they become who they really should be? And we, learn, we then learn about ourselves, letting go of our own failing damages or, and, and using strategies to have a better position in life.
Yes. To everything you just said. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing. I'm just sitting here just listening to you and I'm just like, you know, like, I feel like I'm just sitting here like around a campfire right now talking to you as you explain these things the way you do. You have a very hypnotic tone to you, Ted. <laughs> Right. You have a, your voice is very well, hypnotic in a very good I way. I think I'm right for everybody because there's going to be people that do things absolutely different from anything I could imagine. Oh, no. Um, no question. And I say, and I say, um, Einstein said, it's not that I'm smarter than other people. I just stay up, think longer. And I have the privilege of doing so many stories and trying to make that process simpler and make it effective. And I'm a humanist. So I want my stories to reach out. I believe storytellers are basically what shaman would have been around that campfire, which is to help the society pull together. No, no, That's its purpose. Now, when you made when you made you had a run of the two films back to back, which were pretty successful. You had Robin Hood, and then you had Backdraft, which was the Ron Howard right. movie, and both of them were amazing films. Again, during my video store day, so I made right. sure to right. I made sure to suggest it to many many people, sir. So, um, but. What was it like? Because and I've had other guests on the show too. When they had that one or two, like that, there's moment. You've had multiple moments in your career, but that, I think that was probably one of the first big uh, explosions. Yeah, that, that put us in the map in a different way. We've done several features, but nothing had opened the doors as much. And and even though the doors opened, it didn't mean you get carte blanche. No, you know, sperm, I, I say scripts are like sperm in this town. There's millions of them. They're all swimming towards the exit production. So that's awesome. you, can, you can frustrate the heck out of yourself. You write a script yeah. and it could be the most beautiful, the most coherent, the most uh, emotionally potent. Yeah. You can't get it made and you're damning yourself because you think you failed. No. When I look at my, I, I vote in the Amplis every year, which is the Academy. Um, and there's usually a list of 300 movies. Only 300 movies qualified in America to be considered for best picture. And so we've got thousands and thousands of scripts out there. And it's not, a, it's not necessarily a statement of failure when something doesn't get made. Now, what was it like? I always ask, I ask my guests this sometimes, especially if there's been that moment, that moment that kind of really explodes them in town. What is it like being the bell of the ball? Because I remember... Robin Hood, when that came out, that was a monster hit. It was a very, very large hit for both Kevin. I mean, Kevin was on a that was that was his peak time. He dances with wolves, so we were getting enormous amount field of, of dreams, getting terrible reviews. Oh yeah, um, my, yeah, remember, my son was with us in New York, and he said, "Why do these people hate you, Dad?" Because <laughs> the reviews in the New York Times are horrible. But you know, the the thing, you know, time. Time heals all wounds. Um, <laughs> and no one remembers critics. So, you know, in a way, you can't judge what you've achieved except, and that comes back to this thing, do what you do, do it to the best of your skill level. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let, let time be the judge of it. But if you don't, and I, when I say write, create, think, um, you don't do it to the point where it's dangerous, which means you're going against the conventions. You're going mm -hmm. against that. You're taking it you're not going to find your voice. You're not going to be the significant person that everybody says, well, I want a film like his because he's got a voice. And we, those films stick out with novelty and originality, but they're still going to follow the same footsteps of any good story, but they will be in, in, in a fresh way. So we get um, Robin Hood, we get some doors opened up, but we also get asked to do every bow and arrow film in the world. Oh, and of course. We, um, <laughs> and then we find... 
There are films that um, the system is not. Uh, it, it's you gotta love it, and you can't get it. Let it get you down. But I spent uh, time uh, with Mark Stern, actually helping me as my 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 writing assistant on that project. I spent time with Arnold Schwarzenegger working on Gulliver's Travels for Disney. Spent like eighteen months. Wow. The head of Disney at that time goes. You know, it's a really good script. I don't know why I'm not going to make it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And had and, and had Arnold attached. Yes. Ar- so Arnold in the 90s, which arguably he was still one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time. So and, <laughs> Jesus. But 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 you see, this is normal. Um, and we've gone through dozens and dozens of steps and you realize that the logistics of this are not one-offs. They're survival long enough with keep trying to present the things you care about so that you're willing to take the risks of exposing yourself to try and get them to become reality. And if you don't care about what you've done, which goes back to don't just do something because you think it will sell, you're not going to keep going through the years and years. Now we'll, we'll talk about Harriet Tubman briefly. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, for everybody to know, when we're recording this, Harriet just came out the weekend prior, and it did it, it, it the gangbusters. I mean, people were like, it really overperformed. So please tell us how you're involved with that. Much more than anybody anticipated, which is wonderful. Harriet Tubman, I discovered as an Englishman, listening to a, a quiz show, um, which asked what what woman wearing American uniform went into battle and soldier. And I go, that sounds interesting. It's the only woman ever. And I, and I go and start researching the answer, which is Harriet Tubman, and find this extraordinary, mythic, incredible, altruistic heroine. And, and it appeals to me very much to make films which have got a reinforcement of human nature. Um, we managed to get um, Disney, which was Hollywood Pictures at that time, to write a script with Gregory Allen Howard, who was one of the producers and one of the writers on the, 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 the Harriet, and we got three drafts out, and we couldn't get it made. Um, later on, we were approached by uh, people who had picked up the baton and proud to say we did not stand in the way. We said, take the project, did not charge them money for it, and said, just let us stay involved in some way. Give us a credit if that's comfortable for you. Um, but God bless you. Go out and get it made because – her story is much more important than us having, uh, you know, money in exchange for it. There are things that you, you just think uh, America needs that story. Mm-hmm. And so um, then the producers on the movie um, who took up the challenge, you know, they go through fire, and they got through fire, and they ended up with a beautiful film, a, a wonderful human statement, a moral purpose that I. I'm so proud to be associated with, but all I did was plant the seed. And you, when did you start that journey? Ninety. Correct. So I can only imagine trying to get Harry. And, and, and ninety-four when we sold uh, Gregory Allen Howard getting it written. So even there was four years of trying to get that. And 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 during the nineties, this was not going to happen. Like there was just, I don't think it would have been very difficult in that environment. I mean, in today's world, it's a it's it's tough, but it, there is an yeah. opening for that. There's a conversation about about minorities and about other you know, other other stories that need to be told from different perspectives and so on. 
back then it would have been very difficult. Like I'm just trying to think of the Hollywood Pictures logo coming up yeah. with that movie. I'm like, mm, in the I 90s. Have, I, I, I'm an optimist, so you never know. I mean, that, that, that's the thing. You got to go. You got to no, go. You got to try. No, and, you- and the beauty of it is um, it, 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 it takes a team. I was I I may have you know blown up the football at the beginning, <laughs> but they went out right. and played the game. <laughs> so, right. Um, it takes a team. We're, we chose a very difficult business. No, and it, it is, and it's, and I always tell people we we've our our paintbrush and canvas is probably the one of the most expensive on the planet, you know, to play with. I mean, other than architecture, I think I always say is like as far as an art form is concerned, this is probably one of the most expensive art forms there is. And as filmmakers and as creatives, we have to take some physical responsibility with the money that we're given um, right. or that we spend on this, on these, on this process, on this process where I just love when filmmakers who've never made a movie ever. And by the way, I put myself in this category because I said the exact same thing when I first started, all I need is 3 million. All I need is 5 million At 5 million. I can make, it's nothing. It's 5 million. It's not that big a deal. The last movie was made for 200 million. And Marvel spending 5 million on coffee. It, you know, and that's all fine. Yeah. And dead, right. That, that, I've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this. A million times. Anyone listening out there, no, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Yeah, there's some outliers, of course, that have, that you know they make their their indie movie and then are given a Marvel movie or given a big studio movie or something like that. But they're outliers. It's not the way the business works. Is that fair to say? Well, you you can create your own business if you're able to uh, have enough guts or enough partners who are helping you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that the movie business, as you've been asking, is is changing, but I can't tell you how it's changing. Where's the, where, where would you put your energy right now to try and get movies made? Um, I think that, you know, the apples and the Netflixes are still not accepting independent films until you've succeeded, then they'll cherry pick you. So your, your goal is to try and get something out that gets viral, that gets emotional responses that gets you to, uh, be noticed in, uh, legitimate awards because I think there's a lot of awards com- uh, groups that are out there yeah. um, that may not be actually giving you a uh, status whereas the Nichols or Final Draft or the Austin are very sincere very real judgments on your work mm-hmm. um, and if you if you get uh, and you got to fight for these things and, and, that, and, and it's hard frightening demoralizing and therefore that's why I keep coming back to if you have a personal philosophy and you're pursuing it, nothing you do is wasted. Every element that you write, even if that movie doesn't get made, adds to your ability. It's like muscle development. It adds to your ability the next time you write. And I've seen myself write out of sheer passion when I suddenly hit the click moment, when it's ripe. And I was talking with another young writer yesterday. I'm talking about exactly the same thing. We tend to write a form that is our nature it comes out of our subconscious. What you're really trying to do is to get it out of your subconscious. And I have tools for that. One of my tools is to look at the process like a Lewis and Clark expedition. Any freaking way to the coast is legitimate. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> you, you've never been there before. How the how can you critique the journey? No, and but it, go ahead, go ahead. Once you get there, the brilliant thing is just get to the end. Because just get uh, any way you can get to the end. And if necessary, I write in bits. So I might have an ending and then get to the – I might have a middle and an end. Um, I don't write in a linear form. I write whatever way it comes to me, and I'm grateful for it. Once you get to the end, then you get to see what you've created. 
and you see what you've actually subconsciously been given to yourself. And sometimes it's like dictation out of God. You know, you just don't know why you're getting it. But if you question it, you screw yourself. So there's a net, there's a nag in your head that's going to piece of shit. This is all a waste of time. No one's going to like it. That nag has nothing to be objective about. What it's doing is it's just trying to prevent you from going into a dark cave. And it's helpful when it's doing that, but it's not helpful when you're writing something you've never written before. So you've got to ignore the nag. And then you write down this stuff and you get to the end and then you take a giant celebratory sigh because that's a monumental achievement to get to the end of anything creatively. Mm -hmm. And then you get the permission to look at it and see why you really wrote it. And now, now you have this opportunity to see what it says to you. And it didn't exist before. So now you're, you, you can make a judgment call. And I call that putting the freeway through. And what you're doing is you cleave off all the things you don't need. You combine two characters so they become one. You, you essentially now know why you and how you want to go and why you're getting there. And then you put up the freeway sign so that everybody else can follow you. But you don't do that as one thing. You don't write, i got to be perfect, got to get it out of me, and I've got to write it so it can be a hit. No, you just get it out of you and then tune it and then retune it once you've had people read it so that you make sure that the people who are reading it understand what your goals were. And don't don't just have an, a, an ego snip and say, oh, that's obvious. They should know. No, if you're going to do that, then you're just damning yourself because you will find that most people don't know. They don't have the time to read. They read very badly. Or they give it to somebody who does coverages, who's paid 50 bucks to read it in a hurry. And so the more powerful you can make the statement and not allow it to be misunderstood, the more chance you have of selling it. Now, you also, you work obviously as a producer, you've worked with many directors uh, in your in your day, and you, you're always looking for collaborators to put like that team together. Specifically, when you're hiring a director, what do you look for? in that director? Because I think there's so much misinformation about what filmmakers, why you're smiling, uh, because because you're like, mm. yeah, because there's so many filmmakers have this illusion of. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. What a director needs to be. Like I always tell people, if you walk on a set and the director has a t-shirt that says director or a hat that says director, you need to run away. Generally speaking, (laughs) I don't see Ron Howard or I don't see Steven Spielberg wearing a director hat. Everyone just knows who they are. So what do you look for? What are the characteristics you look for for a good collaborator and specifically a good director? Well, there are two different forms. One is in TV. I look for people who will bring the kind of style that I have envisioned for the show Mm -hmm. to, to the screen. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I did Space Rangers, which was a great, fun, I called it rock and roll in outer space compared with Star Trek, which was classical music. And it, we only landed, we only got six episodes shot. But I chose people that could shoot it like Hill Street Blues with a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So the, I was looking for directors who could actually facilitate things I couldn't do myself as a, as a, as a show creator. Um, but the other way we look for is people who've written something that's so poetic and beautiful or so potent that we understand that we can support them getting it to the screen. And so we frequently work with writer-directors. Um, it, it is, uh, or, or we work with directors whose work we feel simpatico with, who are visionary, who tend to use the camera in a way that's poetic. Um, 
so that the, our goal is if we're not if I'm not doing it myself, I want to do it with somebody whose work I really think is exciting. And my my mentorship as a producer on a set is to ask the questions of the director in the quiet spaces that you get what you want. Don't give up. Let me figure out how to help you. Because I know when I'm on a set um, that the the amount of pressure, the number of people asking you questions, the 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 time issues, the, the, the frickin' effect didn't work, and you've got somebody tapping and saying, we're going to golden time. And I know if you don't shoot it and it doesn't work right, don't accept it. We'll figure it out. Because I've been there, and I know if you accept it, you have a flawed film. And so I'm, I'm quietly trying to be an ally for the vision of the director, not telling him what to do, but I'll sometimes come with a palette of options because I'm when you when you pressure, it's really easy to have ideas. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. See three different ways you can solve this, and any of these help, but never telling him what to do. Now you've written this amazing book called "Writing the Alligator." Can you go a little bit into detail? I know we talked about it a little bit earlier in the show, but can you just go into a little detail about what this book is and who should read it? Because you know it's not just for screenplay writing. I mean, it's also about the business in many ways, about how to deal and navigate the business, uh, which is from a person who actually navigates the business and actually has navigated for many years. So tell me a little bit about the book, the, the origins of the book, and what you hope that it achieves. It, 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 I was invited, well, it's an interesting thing. Again, an assistant to us, one of the development execs who had left our company and gone to work for other companies came to me and said, I got to talk to you. And I go, okay, what is it? He says, you've got to write a book. I said, I'm not writing a book. He says, I never heard anybody explain things the way you do. And I think because I've worked with partners the whole time, and I, and I am a visionary, I don't, I don't deny my creativity, um, that I've always had to explain my creativity in some way to try and get other people on board so we could all go in the same direction. And so he said, write a book on creativity. And I go, I'm never going to do that. And then uh, my partner, who's gone to USC and is now a chaired, tenured professor there, said, would you like to teach? And I'm going, I don't know if I want to teach. But um, And they said, well, it would be the entrepreneurial class, which is the pitching class. And I go, oh, cool. Creative entrepreneurism? I wouldn't mind to find out what that is because maybe this is when I could write a book. But I was too scared to write a book. All I did was I wrote one chapter. And I went in that first day, gave the students my chapter, and I said, I'm the professor, mark my paper. And it was on passion. And I, I wrote the book based on what I felt I wanted to communicate, where my biggest vulnerabilities were, where my biggest failings were, where the things I needed to be reassured about to create a sense of voice, not to dictate what you should achieve. Try and find ways to reinforce people's skills so they could take the risk of being themselves. And my book was determinately responsive to what I was learning from the MFA students at USC about what were their instincts and what were their feelings and how could I give them strength. So my, I, I don't believe in teaching. I believe in inspiring. I didn't want to make a book that uh, was a formula because I, you know, we, one day we had a young guy get up and run out of the room. And I phoned him up and I said, what, what happened? He said, I just panicked. And I decided I'd write a chapter on stress and the good side of stress and try and put stress in a perspective, which is stress is actually a, a positive survival mechanism when you look at it the right way. Yeah. Uh, 
it, you know, we're naturally problem solving creatures, but it doesn't mean it doesn't cost us something to try and figure out how to solve the problems. So I've never seen a book with stress in it. Um, I, when I first went in, uh, I, I never taught, I didn't know what a freaking syllabus was. I thought it was something you had to take penicillin for. So I'm looking at the syllabus and there's the previous guy had taught with one book. I'm going, I've got 30 people all reading one book. What a waste of time. So I then found 18 books and I found them on Amazon and I said, okay, uh, we're, we're going to divide these books up and everybody's going to do one paragraph on this book and the 10 most important things that they learned from it as if this was information you're going to share with your friend. So the first week, the students come in and they're pitching the books and the 10 things. That's amazing. And, they, and, and then I put 10 of those in my book, which were, so they could, you could sample 10 books on this, in this area, uh, in Hollywood instantly and make decisions whether that book, some you'd want to buy, whether these ideas just sort of fit you. And I also found people like Shane Black and Lita Caligridis who were successful Hollywood. And I asked them to write a single small chapter on overcoming fear and what was the worst things that ever happened. And because I, I would bring in people and I wouldn't ask them, how did you succeed? I'd say, what's the worst thing you overcame? And you, you find that then it normalizes the process. You know, I spent, I, I, one of the most wonderful things in my life was I got to be able to go and spend two days with David Lean. Oh. And he was at the American Film Institute doing a retrospective of his films. And oh. what we discovered was that when he when it, when the film went up, he'd introduce it and he'd come in afterwards to answer questions. And then he sat in the lobby. So we all, you know, the guys that were smart went out in the lobby and spent two days asking him questions. And he complained about not being able to get uh, Dino De Laurentiis to greenlight his version of Mutiny on the Bounty, a Robert Bolt script, and he felt sabotaged by that. He talked about his struggles to get things that he wanted done, and it wasn't as obvious and as simple as he makes it look when he succeeded. And it's not that I'm David Lean, but what it did was it humanized the process. And it made it so it was understandable and achievable to look at what he is, his body of work and to see how he worked, which again, just gave me courage. And so I wanted my book to take the myths of being perfect. And I really don't like schematic books, except as a checklist at the end of writing, then they're helpful. But at the beginning, if you're trying to write to someone else's formula, you're, you're going to run into a lot of problems trying to think like someone else. And a lot of these people are wonderful. They're development execs. They've gotten a lot of experience, but they've never initiated. And initiating is blowing on an ember sometimes and making it flame up. It's like getting a two-year-old to ride a bicycle when they're 15. You've got to get them all the way through all those stages of creativity. And you don't do that by yelling at it. You don't do it by beating it every time it falls over. It's like you got to be able to see yourself as nurtured and taking risks and that making mistakes is normal and it's acceptable because if you don't, then you won't be able to take on the challenge of, of getting to the end of a script. We, we allow ourselves in film to do multiple takes with an actor and then we shoot another angle. So, you know, we should allow ourselves that life that having multiple takes 
you know, rewriting a book is more important than writing it in some way because you're able to distill down what you maybe took 10 pages to write. You can now distill it down to a more cogent level. But you can't do that the first time you write it. And to criticize yourself for not writing coherently immediately is self-flagellation. It's terribly unfair. So my, my, my thing was to try and help allow people to jump into the unknown. And other things, philosophy, philosophies of choosing an agent or a manager. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. We tend to think we should get the biggest one. Because that's going to be a, a career bonus. In fact, the biggest one has to deal with the biggest other writers. And so you're getting very little of that person's time. And my, my feeling was search for the person who is your, what we, what, what we would call a foul-weather friend. Someone who's going to talk to you when it's shitty. Not someone who's going to talk to you when it's easy to sell you. Mm-hmm. They, they're philosophically looking to support the vision and the style that you've got as a human being in your art. Because if you're working against them and they say, oh, I can't sell that, can't sell that, can't sell that, you end up being demoralized. But if someone says, you know, if you just did that, I could sell it, that difference is enormous. It's, it's vital to creative people. So my book's effort was to try and find and guide people to take steps in a career, in a lifetime, so that your work became your life, so that you could integrate both of them and also deal with the fallow periods, which are long, and also deal with the things that you don't necessarily sell because there's just too much out there. And also encourage to take risks and to stick your neck out and try entrepreneurial ideas. And when they don't work, switch again. And, uh, you know, and, I, and it goes right down to the philosophy of how do you lay out a page, which you can't argue about when you're writing your first draft. But when you get down to it, every word you get off a page makes it easier to write, easier to read. So I worry at the end of the process, right down to the white space and the layout. And if you see a script that, that sort of helps you read it because it's embracing your eye and it doesn't have big wadges, just an easier script to sell. So every, every step of my process is, is all about trying to get the thing I deeply care about to an audience that can buy it. And if it doesn't go there, at least I've carried it on with a sense of uh, personal purpose and learned from the process. Amazing, sir. Amazing. Now, I'm, I, we've, we've gone, we've, we're, we could talk for another three hours, I'm sure. But, um, <laughs> but I am going uh, to, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my sure, guests. Um, cool. So first of all, what are the top three screenplays every screenwriter should read? Thanks. <laughs> we won't. I mean, it's not going to be on your gravestone. So just you know, just three. No, like no, 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 but it's, it's it's not the sort of thing I think about. So I mean, I could <laughs> I could riff three right now, and there would be it. another three tomorrow. Uh, yeah, gosh, that's awfully difficult. Everybody's going to say Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Robert Bolt um, wrote in a very distilled and powerful fashion. We actually got the privilege of meeting with him and trying to work with him on things, and actually did work with his son on some things. So. Uh, a Bolt script is a great thing to read. Um, I think you should read Lethal Weapon. Oh, so which, good. Which is, again, and it has what I call fusion writing. And fusion writing is what I, I really, you know, again, you have these rules. You know, you're supposed to use the descriptions for so-and-so. No, you're supposed to use the descriptions to support your story. And therefore, when you read it, Shane Black is like putting punchlines into the description. 
he sees a gun. It's a big fucking gun. Mm-hmm. And it's really a big fucking gun, you know. Uh, he's, and he's wonderful. So your potency is in the description areas as well as in the dialogues. And, if you know, actors can carry thoughts that make you see into their minds. So I, I insist that people write a thought in and, and I have other people say, well, no, you're not allowed to do That's against the rules. There are no rules. The rule is sell your story. So if you read Lethal Weapon, what you're reading is this potency of imagery, this pulp fiction writing that is just so dynamic that it causes you to want to keep reading and pulls you into the characters and into their lives and into their minds. So that's two. God, three. Okay. It's a wonderful life. Okay. Very good. Yeah, that'll do. That, that'll do. I, I yearn to try and make a film like It's a Wonderful Life. I worked for 12 years on a project of mine called Father Time, which was about Father Time who gives human beings time every year. And he argues with the original architect that we're just a waste of time and is forced to go down to Earth for the last 24 hours before he has permission not to give us any more time and bumps into a family and learns what it is to be human. And I want to see that movie. Why is that movie not made, Ben? Because there's more films out there than there are people uh, to make them, you know, more scripts out. But it's a wonderful life. People think it was a comedy, but in fact, it's a, it's a semi-tragedy. Here's a guy that's going to kill himself. Yeah. And everybody that loves him and he's going to leave him behind. And what it really is illustrative, again, of this altruistic heroism, the humanness of that film is just beautiful. So if you read it, you really get to grips with some of the... the elements of it that are very humanistic and quite troubling and at the same time very beautiful um, and reinforcing of human nature. Now, what advice would you give a filmmaker uh, or screenwriter trying to break into the business today? Uh, Well, it it depends what your goals are. If you want to write, I would say go and try and write anyway. Um, in, In my book, I have a chapter on what to do if you're not actually in the business, which is go work somewhere that's creative, see creativity going on, uh, go work for a cable company that's doing local um, shows for the community because they're going to likely let you do things because no one is really wants to take on the work and volunteer for it. Um, try writing things that are um, that you put out yourself on your cell phone, put them on the internet, put them up so that try and, try and get noticed. Um, you know, again, don't overwhelm yourself. I, you know, the thing that Lifetime's Nine was selling commercials for life, and it was to not overwhelm the kids. And so sometimes people will do these epic things which they can't, they they struggle to achieve. But if you say I'm going to do a three-minute, utterly incredibly potent short film, you'll get people to look at that. You can get that to a studio executive. You say all I want is you know, a hundred and for 24 of your seconds or whatever it is. And if you've mastered something and you can do it, I mean, commercials do it every day, that is original, different, and potent, you've got a better chance of getting noticed than if you do something which is 10 minutes and floppy and doesn't quite hold together because you couldn't do it. So my, my, my attitude is do, do tools that help you break in. Find allies who are willing to spend time with you who are already in there. So, so go, to, go take classes on screenwriting. That they're a night school because you're going to meet other people that are doing it and you're going to find a community. That's the, the Ken Robinson who has the number one TED talk, which is why, how schools kill creativity. Yes. Uh, 
what what he talks about is find your tribe and hang out with them. And that means engineers only feel comfortable talking to other engineers because their brains work that way. Musicians are most comfortable with other musicians and they suddenly start grooving off each other and they start giving each other um, cathartic, charismatic, catalytic ideas. And so you, you should go try and find where you can hang with uh, people that are doing something you want to achieve in a non-dogmatic area so that you can learn from them. And I, I say that my buddy who phoned me up and said, the CBC's got this TV show, is the reason I have a career in Hollywood. A friend tipped me off. And in interestingly enough, we're still friends. I'm executive producer on his latest movie, which is a, a movie about the Beatles going to Rishkeshesh with Maharishi. And yesterday oh, we were just chatting... Yes. And, um, you know, I was trying to help solve his problems. And because from the outside, it's so easy. You know, when you're in the middle of it, you've got this cloud around your head. So, Is that movie being um, made? Is that movie being made? It's made. It's, uh, it's finished. I can't I wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I, I actually went with him and my wife and another friend to Rishikesh uh, a year ago and uh, went to the ashram, which is now like a jungle ruin. And the, the Indian government is slowly trying to turn it back into a tourist spot, a tourist mecca. That's amazing. He went there when the Beatles first were there and photographed them uh, because he was running away from a bad love uh, breakup. And it's just like, spend India 60 times now. Jesus. All right. So what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? That's the one I haven't learned. Stick my neck out more. Really? Take more chances is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm terrible at it. Well, you, you've done okay, sir. You've done okay. I, but the interesting thing about um, creative people is the thing that you most care about is what you haven't achieved. Especially if you're working on things that impassion you. I have projects, two or three, which are what I call life scripts. Mm -hmm. These are the things that force me to write them. Sometimes it tells you. And I am failing my life scripts at the moment. I'm not doing enough to get them made. And I'm not finding the actors that can become the carrier wave to get them made on. And I'm trying, but I'm not trying hard enough because they deserve more. Now, um, what was the biggest fear you had to overcome to make your first film or write your first screenplay? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. Uh, well, self doubt. I think that that's the you know that this is a waste of time. I'm a freaking idiot. Who am I? We came to Hollywood um, and we we sold a couple of projects and we we determined, even though I'd won all these awards for this drama, um, I'm sure that I didn't know how to write and that Hollywood writers did know how to write. And so we hired writers and then we looked at the work, and realized that no better than us. There, there, there were, in fact, some ways we were better interpreter. I was better interpreting my ideas. And I kept doing that. I kept sort of trying to give someone my idea and have them write it because I was scared I wouldn't succeed with it. I wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. That's Emma. And then when you see the result, you go, oh, God, I could have done better than that. Why did you do that? And I've done that to two or three projects where you go, oh, I should have stayed on and had the courage to write it. So self-doubt is the biggest problem and um, putting yourself with the right people. Don't hang around with people who do a lot of drugs, do a lot, you know, 
and I, I sound pompous saying that, but I did jugs when I was a young guy. I tried them all. It was fun. But I actually want to hang out with people that are constructive, who are self-starting, who have a vision of the future that is optimistic and are going to be problem-solving and are going to be allies when it gets tough. And that, those are the people that you can build a foundation on. And, and coming to this town to start a career, you, you have to find those people. You have to work to get them, which is why trying to find community places like um, going, going to night school or something, it, it, it puts you in a banding opportunity. And uh, going through school or USC or something, I say keep reaching out. That network of people um, will be vital to you in the future. Try and help them. Try and give them things so they want to trade with you. Because somewhere down the line, someone will know some access to something that can change your life. Now, where can people find your book and more about you? Um, well, I don't promote myself well enough. Um, I, I did put up a kind of cheesy-looking site called writingthealligator.com. And um, you can download a free chapter from my book, which I love. Uh, and also you can download uh, – there's a link to downloading a book I wrote which is a mini book called A Creative Person's Success Manual. Um, I wrote that out of passion when uh, my son wrote me an email, who's also a writer, and we tend to mentor each other. And he wrote me an email one night saying, I hate this, it's awful. And I decided I had to write him a letter by, by 6 o'clock the next day, forced myself. And then the ideas kept coming. So I ended up with this, what I call a mini book, which was just a philosophy of structuring the process of creativity in a way that you could embrace it and see yourself inside it and see that you're normal and that the feelings you have are um, part of being a special creative person and that there's uh, things in there which I wanted to share, learn from other people. So that's for free. I, got, I persuaded Michael Weesey books um, to give it away. And it's a, well, that was a big, that's a big, that's a big ask. <laughs> yeah, you know, but they see it, they, they you know, Michael Weesey Books is the best film book company in the world mm -hmm. because they, they was, Michael says, I will ask an author to write a book that I don't necessarily believe will sell profitably, but because I think this voice needs to be in the film community. And so instead of writing books that are like performer, which some companies do, you got to have these stereotypical steps in a book. He's asking his writers to find their own passion and express it through the book. And they're cool. <laughs> uh, so you can, you can get, if you go to writingthealligator.com, I'm doing my pitch, which I very seldom do. Uh -huh. um, you, you can get led to both the download of a chapter, which is designed to inspire you to write, it's designed to take away that fear that you must do it in a certain process but to actually embrace yourself as being the instrument and that you're entitled to allow that instrument to play itself as you discover. And that, that again is, uh, if I could, if somebody ever gets up at an Oscar and says, you know, I read that chapter and it helped me, uh, I will be so proud. <laughs> Penn, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. It is, you've, you've dropped all sorts of knowledge bombs on the tribe uh, today. And I truly, truly appreciate you taking <laughs> the time to, to share your experience, your, and your knowledge and your wisdom with us. So thank you again for taking the time out. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. You're a great interviewer. I, I enjoyed it. It was easy to do. 
I want to thank Penn again for coming on and dropping those knowledge bombs. Thank you again, Penn. If you want to get Penn's book or want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, please head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 633. And guys, Black Friday is coming and we are having a once in a lifetime sale over at Indie Film Hustle Academy. If you've been eyeing some courses over on IFH Academy, this is the time to buy it. We will be having a sale from Black Friday to Cyber Monday. No extensions, no early. It is exactly when it's going to be. And if I were you, I would move quickly because what we are bringing out is once in a lifetime. I've never sold anything on our sh- on IFH Academy. I've never given deals like this before, guys. Just, just let's put it this way. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, IFHacademy.com. You can go check out the courses we have there right now. They will be at a price that you will not believe. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.